Well, this last week, last several weeks really, have proved to be quite tragic for our country as there have been a series of shootings that have taken place from Buffalo to Valdi to Tulsa. In each case, the evil that resided in the human heart drove men to take the lives of other people. Precious image bearers of God were out shopping, going to school, tending to patients, and they were suddenly taken from this world. Each time we hear news such as this, our hearts break. Of course, that's not the only tragic news that has come across the news feed. The world is watching as Russia is now over 100 days into their invasion of Ukraine. The atrocities that the Russian army is committing against Ukrainian civilians are just now becoming known. These such tragedies, though, are not new. Mankind has been witnessing such things ever since the fall of man in Genesis, as recorded in Genesis chapter 3. For in Genesis chapter 4, Cain killed his brother Abel, and thus began the intentional killing of one human being of another. But on top of this human evil that is perpetrated against fellow man, there's also other aspects of the fallenness of this world that we are left to grapple with, which we know as natural evil. A wildfire that races through a mountain community. A powerful hurricane that flattens cities. A tsunami that floods a whole coastline. The loss of life from these events are equally catastrophic. And so our hearts are rightly burdened by all of the evil that we see, that we hear. Both human evil, moral evil, and natural evil. But what are we to make of all of this? What should our response be as these headlines come across the TV screen or notify us on our phones? How should we respond? What should we do? Just so happens in God's providence that in our sequential exposition of the book of Luke, that it lands this morning at a timely word from Jesus. As he was asked to respond to some tragedies that took place in his day. And so this morning we're going to see what his response was and what we can learn from that. So I invite you to please open your personal copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can use one that's in the pew rack directly in front of you and find our passage on page 1037. 1037. 
Our passage this morning, these first nine verses of Luke 13, are the closing section of a section of discourse or teaching that Jesus has been giving that began in chapter 12, verse 1. He's been speaking particularly in light of the coming crisis, the coming judgment that awaits all mankind. And therefore, he says, that should change the way that we live, should change how we think about our lives. Luke 13, 1 through 9, that we'll look at this morning, brings that argument to a close with a poignant finish. And so I invite you to follow along as I read our passage this morning, Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. It says, There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree and plant, planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure, and then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May God plant the truth of his word upon our hearts. Bow with me as I pray. Our God and Father, we come with heavy and sobered hearts this morning. And we ask that you would please enable us to learn what you would have for us in your word. May you enable us to repent of our pride, to enable us to see your glory and to see the truths that are laid out in this passage for us. Oh, Father, may you please allow nothing to hinder us from seeing and obeying your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the response of Jesus to the tragedies that occurred in his day uh, that we read about in this text give us three things to think about uh, in the face of such catastrophes of our own day. Three things that these, these verses prompt us to think about as we too face tragedies and catastrophes based upon what Jesus has said. Now before we begin, I want to say a word about the kind of response that Jesus gives here. Jesus is, in this occasion, responding to a group of people who are not intimately acquainted with the tragedies that took place. In other words, he's not speaking to the family members of people that passed away in these tragedies. He's speaking to people that are well aware of them, that feel deeply about them, but are not personally connected to them. And so they, these, the audience is somewhat removed from the situations that are described here. 
And I believe that if Jesus were talking directly to the family members of those who were killed in these incidents, that his tone and his tact would be quite different. In fact, we see an example of that in John chapter 11 where he's ministering to Mary and Martha who have just lost their brother Lazarus. We see there Jesus' compassion, Jesus' comfort. We see Jesus weeping at the death of Lazarus. And so here, Jesus is responding to those who are well aware of the situation but not intimately acquainted with it. And in that sense, this text is helpful for us as well. For these events that we hear about in our own day weigh heavy upon us, but more than likely we are not intimately tied with them, not having family members that have passed through them. And so what should we think about these things? How should we respond to them? And so we need to pay attention to Jesus' response here. The first thing that Jesus' response prompts us to think about is number one, our own death. Based upon Jesus' response, we should think about our own death. Verses 1 through 3. Verse 1, the scene opens up as it says that there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Here, it says that they were present at that very time, which tells us that this is a connection with what came directly before it in chapter 12. Again, as I said earlier, this is the completion of a discourse, of a teaching that Jesus has been giving. And this is Luke's way of, uh, of saying this is a continuation, that there were those that heard that teaching that then brought up the, this account. You know, the chapter and verse numbers were not added into the scriptures until later. And so this, in Luke's stitching together of this narrative, he would have seen this directly flowing out of chapter 12. They would have flowed together. And so there were those that heard him teaching about the coming judgment. And it prompted him, them to ask Jesus about some who had already died. Those were some Galileans. Now, the event that's recorded here in chapter 13, verse 1, is not recorded anywhere else in extra-biblical history. One of the greatest uh, historians of that time that we have for recording extra-biblical, or uh, attesting to biblical events, I should say, is Josephus. And Josephus mentions a lot of things that take place in first century Israel, but not this particular event. He does mention, though, that Pilate committed other atrocities against the Jews, and so this sort of event is not far-fetched, is not out of character, you could say, for Pilate. Pilate was, has already been identified in the book of Luke. In chapter 3, verse 1, he's identified as the governor of Judea. So Judea, the southern part of Israel, was his domain of jurisdiction. He was there as a servant of Rome to keep the peace. But, as this verse indicates, he committed some great atrocities against the Jewish people. It says that he mingled blood of some Galileans with their sacrifices. What, is this, what does this mean? It seems to indicate that as Jewish pilgrims were coming to Jerusalem, most likely for Passover, they were bringing the animals that they would need to sacrifice and bring them up to the temple to have them slaughtered. And somewhere along the way, either as they're making their way up to the temple, uh, maybe even as they're uh, bringing them to the priest for them to be slaughtered, that uh, 
that Pilate's men, Pilate's soldiers, somehow took action. We don't know what the offense was. We don't know why that there was this violent outburst. But for some reason, several Jews, particularly Galileans, who were pilgrims from the north of Israel down there in Jerusalem, and they were slaughtered as they were in the middle of bringing their sacrifices for the festival of Passover. Again, we don't have any other details, but this is enough for us to know that this is a clear example of an evil man murdering otherwise innocent people. People that didn't deserve to be killed for whatever it was, and yet they were killed there. And in this, we see this is a clear example of what we call moral evil, where it's clearly evil done from one person to another. Now the people, you know, the question is, why are the people bringing this up? Why would they even mention this, right? There could be two reasons here. One is that they want to get Jesus morally outraged about the behavior of this Roman official. The Jews hate the Romans, and they think if they can get Jesus on their side and help them to, uh, to further their cause, to say, listen, Jesus is with us, and he hates Pilate, and he hates the Romans, and so they want to get him outraged. But Jesus' reply seems to indicate that there was something else going on. Something else beneath the surface that was prompting them to mention this event. It seems that they saw that this great evil that took place against these Galileans was somehow proof that those people were somehow more uh, evil, that they were greater sinners than the people talking to Jesus right here. In other words, the people talking to Jesus believed that the absence of such calamities in their own life was evidence that they were right with God. And it's at this particular second point, this, this second reason that Jesus strikes. Because he asks in verse 2, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? See, it's common for humanity to interpret bad circumstances as a sign of a deity's disapproval of our lives. And this is, this is a, uh, common as mankind across the globe and across time. And that the absence of such calamities, the absence of such bad things in their lives, is proof that God is happy with my life. Again, you find this in cultures all over the world. You step into a pagan culture somewhere and they operate off of this belief that the gods are there and they need to be appeased. And if you're not doing the right things to appease them, then he's, they're going to lash out at you and they're going to punish you. And so you better get your act together because otherwise they're going to punish you in some way. And that if, you're, if you uh, do everything right, then your life is going to go good. And know that nothing bad will happen to you. We see this in the Old Testament in, among Job's counselors. Remember Job who experienced great suffering. And the, his, his friends, his counselors came alongside him trying to make sense of what's going on in his life. After losing his children and, and receiving painful sores all over his body. He just goes from the height of wealth and ease to plummets to this place of pain and misery and suffering. And Eliphaz in chapter 4 in his lecture to Job says this. He says, remember 
Who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. He says, listen, if, if you were innocent, if your children were innocent, none of this would have happened to you. So obviously there's sin, because it's the iniquitous, it's the, the sinful people that God breathes out his hot anger towards. And so Jesus takes on this thinking here, even in Luke chapter 13. Look at his reply in verse 3. Look at what he says. He says, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. These Galileans were not worse sinners. And nor is, are the people standing there more righteous or in a better place with God. No doubt Jesus must have astounded and shocked his audience with this reply. They, because instead of focusing on the sin of Pilate and the atrocity that that was, and rather than focusing on the death of the Galileans and maybe how uh, sinful they were, instead Jesus turns his scope upon the people sitting right in front of him. They weren't expecting that. They were wanting to point the attention to Pilate or to these other people that were killed. But Jesus sees right through their facade. And he tells them that whatever this event should say, it should cause you to think about your own death someday. Now as you can see, as we read the passage earlier, Jesus gives the virtue the same reply to both situations. He talks about Galileans being killed by Pilate. He talks about a tower falling on some people. And he gives the same reply to both. In these replies, I believe there's two main things for us to pull out of them. And for our purposes this morning, we're going to use the first reply to consider the first thing to consider and the second reply to think about the second. But both of them are really encapsulated in both of Jesus' replies. So the first thing that I believe that Jesus wants his audience and us today to think about is to think about our own death. The mortality that all of us have. Now this rhetorical move of changing the subject from the deceased to the living is a move uh, that was, un as, uh, was uncomfortable in that day as it is today. We don't like to suddenly have the attention turned to us. We don't like the conversation turned to be thinking about our own death. In fact, why are you being so morbid, right? We can often think when death or the reality of death or the the fact of death is brought up. We don't like to, to dwell on that. In fact, listen to the great pastor J.C. Ryle who wrote over a hundred years ago as he highlighted this very reality amongst humanity. He said, The death of the Galileans mentioned here was probably a common subject of conversation in Jerusalem and all Judea. We can well believe that all the circumstances and particulars belonging to it were continually discussed by thousands who never thought of their own latter end. It is just the same in the present day. A murder, a sudden death, a shipwreck, or railway accident will completely occupy the minds of a neighborhood or be in the mouth of everyone you meet, and yet these very persons dislike talking of their own deaths and their own prospects in the world beyond the grave. Such is human nature in every age. In religion, men are ready to talk of anybody's business rather 
than their own. Not much has changed in over 100 years, right? Not much has changed in 2,000 years. We do not like to think about our own death. We don't mind talking about the deaths of other people. The 24-hour news cycle makes sure we don't forget it. They keep it before us. And there's all sorts of talking heads, as they say, to dialogue and to discuss and debrief and debate and all these things about all these things happening to other people, but no one wants to turn the spotlight on themselves. No one wants to think about their own death. And yet this is exactly what Jesus wants us to do. He wants us to consider our own mortality. We are to look at the senseless murders and the loss of life and to reflect upon the fact that we too will die someday. Now, Jesus is not promising that his audience there that day, nor us today, will die in the same way that these people died. The word likewise that is found there, that you will all likewise perish, is not saying that you're going to die in that way. It's to say that you will die as well. You will perish as well. You too will die. Some will pass away from violent deaths, others from peaceful ones, but the point Jesus is trying to bring home is that everyone dies. So friend, this morning, to the events of this world as well as the text before us, it prompts you to think about your own death, your own mortality. No one knows the day or the time. The Lord alone knows when we will pass from this earth to the next. But your day will come. It may come suddenly. It may come gradually. We do not know the day of our death. But we must be prepared for it. So we should look at, our, at the deaths of others. We should see the headlines and say, If that were me, would I be ready to go? Would I be ready to go? Would I be ready to meet my maker? Friends, we live in a society that has tried hard as we can to shield ourselves from death and its effects. Most of us are not around death or have rarely seen a dead person. People used to die in homes, but now it's often in hospitals. There used to be many more open casket funerals, and for multiple reasons, there's uh, less of those these days. And so we're increasingly isolated from death and seeing death. In addition to this, Death has been given a facelift by modern man. Death has been called a friend. Greet it. Embrace it. People talk about death being a gateway. They will even throw parties instead of funerals. But friends, make no mistake. Death is an enemy. It is the greatest enemy. And death strips everything from us. Death pulls everything out of our hands. Relationships, possessions, reputation, accolades, and property. It's right for us to hate death. And we grieve when it happens and we long for it to be no more and to be taken away. But the fact of the matter is that death will come to each and every one of us. Our lives on this earth will end and thinking about this should sober us rightly. It should cause us to evaluate our lives. And so I ask you this morning, when was the last time you thought about your death? 
When was the last time you thought about the time when your days will end? Are you ready to pass from this life to the next? Now, being ready means that we've made the right preparations. And while there are many things for us to think through before we die, at the top of the list has got to be the condition of our own soul before the Lord. And this is where we turn to next. Jesus' response first prompts us to think about our own death, but secondly, it prompts us to think about our spiritual condition. Our spiritual condition, verses 4 through 5. Look at it with me. He says, Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and had killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus turns from an example of moral evil, of men committing evil against somebody else, to what's called natural evil, a, a act of nature, so to speak, in which by chance a random thing happens. A tower falls on 18 people. Again, we have no other extra evidence of this. There's no other historical account of this. Siloam is the area in the south part of the city of Jerusalem. Today you can visit the pool of Siloam. And, uh, and so this tower must have been right around that area in the southern part of Jerusalem. And whether it was a construction mistake whether it was an earthquake, we don't know. The tower fell over and killed 18 people. Jesus, notice here, brings this up. The people didn't even ask him about it. He's already got it on his mind, and he brings it forward to continue to further his point. These people were killed by an unfortunate accident that cost their lives. But then, once again, notice Jesus goes to the same point. He asks, were these people more wicked? Were they worse sinners? Were they worse offenders because this happened to them? Did God want them to die in this way because of their increased iniquity? And Jesus answers with an emphatic no. No, I tell you. And so Jesus makes it very clear here that those that are are killed by natural disasters or moral evil, that it gives no indication of their true character before God, whether they survive or whether they're killed. In other words, God's sovereign will, God's sovereign estimation of their moral status is not made clear through the results of evil that is perpetrated or through the deaths that happen through natural disasters. Now, for someone to survive or someone to die with one of these events may, does indicate something of God's sovereign will. It just doesn't indicate their level of righteousness or level of sinfulness. For example, Hitler's surviving of an assassination attempt indicated God's verdict of his righteousness no more than the Jews slaughtered at Hitler's hand indicated God's verdict of their unrighteousness. Just because those that died and those that survived doesn't get, give us God's estimation. And so Jesus repeats in verse 5 his emphatic conclusion, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. By, by these words, friends, 
Note that Jesus indicated that there was a fate worse than death itself. That every human being is headed to that worse fate unless they repent. The fate worse than death is captured by the word perish. It does speak of death, and we mentioned that earlier, but it goes farther than that. Jesus is not just telling people, listen, if you repent of your sins, then you'll avoid physical death and you'll live on forever in perpetuity. No, that's not the case. He is telling people how to avoid that greater fate known as spiritual death or the second death. You see, scripturally, there's two kinds of deaths. There's physical and spiritual, also called the first death or the second death. The first death is our physical death that everyone must experience unless the Lord returns first. The second death is only for those who have failed to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus. The second death is the final and eternal torment of rebellious humanity. And Jesus has already mentioned this reality back in chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. Flip back there with me. Chapter 12, look at it in verses 4 and 5. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do. Verse 5, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Do you see? There's the first death, and that's what mankind is able to bring about, the killing of somebody else. But there's a greater fate that comes later, and it is only in the jurisdiction of the Lord. That God himself is the one who's able to cast into hell, Jesus says, and we are to fear him, we are to, to serve him and listen to his words because he has the authority to cast us into hell. Revelation chapter 20, the very end of the last book of the Bible, tells us that the second death is the lake of fire. It is an actual place. It's not just a place made up in the figment of someone's imagination. It's not just metaphorical for something. It is an actual place that those who fail to repent will be thrown into. Listen to how John recounts that final scene of judgment. He says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Folks, every single person on this planet needs to grapple with this fact, young and old, that 
There is a second death that is awaiting all those who do not repent of their sins. That every one of us is guilty of breaking God's law and are headed to that fate if nothing changes. In our natural state, this is our destiny. No matter how nice of a person we are, no matter how mild our bad behavior might be, no matter how much church we've participated in over the years, our destiny is to perish if we do not repent. Our souls will perish forever, and at that point, it'll be too late. The Bible describes hell as an ongoing place of torment. It's not simply a place where we cease to exist or where we get annihilated and then we're, we're done away with. Poof. The lake of fire is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so perish to perish is the destiny of all mankind. And it's a weighty reality for our own souls and for the souls of those whom we love. But it's true. We can't gloss over it. We can't paint over it with niceties about people being good people. We've got to grapple with the, the truth, the truth that God has revealed in his word. But friends, the good news is that Jesus doesn't leave us with that hopeless picture of perishing. In this text, he provides a way of escape. He doesn't leave us there to say that we're all headed to hell and then walks away. He says that you don't have to perish. You just need to repent. In other words, the door of rescue is the door of repentance. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Repentance, to repent means to change one's mind, to do a 180. It refers to a change of direction in one's thinking that will then play out in one's life. And so in the context of this passage, remember Jesus has been revealing himself to the nation of Israel and calling them to repent. Trust in me, believe in me, I am the Messiah, Jesus says. They are to repent of their sins, of their turning away from the living God and to trust in him. But so far they haven't done that. He's pressing them here though so that they would do it before it's too late. He's calling Israel to trust in him, to repent of their sins and to trust in him. Jesus speaks of this repentance, this turning away from perishing, this, this escape and rescue from perishing also in one of the most famous verses in the Bible. John 3, verse 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You see, the path to avoid the fate of hell is through turning away from our sin, doing a 180, and turning to and embracing Jesus Christ. Believing wholeheartedly in Him. Believing that salvation is found only in Him. Believing in Jesus keeps us from perishing. And so in these two verses then, we have the, here in Luke 13 and in John 3.16, we have the two sides of the same coin, the, the coin of conversion. What's required for conversion? There's a turning away and a turning to. There's a rejecting and an embracing. There's a repentance and there's a faith. 
We repent and believe. Both are necessary to become a Christian. Someone must let go of their sin and cling to Jesus. They must surrender control of their life and submit to Christ as king. They must stop pursuing what pleases them and start pursuing what pleases the Lord. This is what it means to become a Christian. Not just to adopt Jesus into our lives. Not just to simply add on more Christian behaviors into our life, but to truly turn away. To let go of sin. To let go of our idolatry. And to cling to Jesus and trust in him completely for our salvation. That if everything else were stripped away and everything else were to fail, that I have Jesus and with him I am safe from the greatest fate, which is hell. Now this repentance and this trusting in Christ is not a one-time incident. We don't just do this one time in our our past and then we get our book stamped and then we're good. Repentance and faith is the Christian life, friends. If we follow Christ, we'll repent and believe every day. It will be evident in our lives for Christ's glory. The Bible calls this the bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, if we truly have repented, if we truly have let go of the control of our lives and and that we are turning away from our sins to Christ for salvation, then what will be manifest in our lives in the days afterward are fruits that keep with that original turning of repentance. There'll be fruit that we have indeed turned away from our sins. See, there's some that would like to argue that say, oh no, repentance is simply a change of our minds. And that it doesn't have to play out in our lives and, and someone can say they've repented even though their behavior hasn't changed. But I would say if there isn't a change of behavior, how, in what sense can we say that there's been a change of mind? If an alcoholic says he's changed his mind about alcohol but he still gets drunk, and what say, in what way could you say that he's changed his mind about alcohol or that he's repented of alcohol? You say nothing's changed. You haven't changed your mind about it at all because your behavior is still the same. If a liar says he changed his mind about lying but he still lies, in what sense can we say that he changed his mind or that he repented? Friends, the Bible's clear that if we repent, if we change our thinking on a matter that it's going to manifest itself in our lives, that there will be fruit in keeping with Repentance. And so because of Jesus' words here, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. I ask you, have you repented of your sins? You may have heard this language a long time, heard about repentance, heard about turning from sin, heard about trusting in Jesus, but have you actually done it yourself? Or have you just been around those who are doing it? Or have you just sought to be a moral person around other people? What is your spiritual condition? Are you prepared to face Christ, the judge? Because when we face him, we can't stand with a group of people and say, oh, I'm with all these people. Or I'm with this person, my spouse. Or I'm with this person, my parent. We all stand individually before a holy God and must give an account. And the only acceptable safety to keep us from being thrown into hell is to say that I stand with Christ and I trust Him and He was crucified for me. He bore the wrath that I deserved and I cling to Him. He is my only rock and refuge. He's my only safety. Friends, that is our only 
hope. The only way that we're going to be prepared to stand before Christ one day is to cling to Him. Have you ever repented? Do you know of your own sinfulness? Do your sins cause you sorrow? Have you cried out to God and sought forgiveness at the throne of grace? Have you truly turned from sin and put off the old man and put on the new man? Is there a change in your life at some level? Friends, none of us are perfect. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a change in direction, not perfection. Is there a change? Have the people around you seen a change? Is that change continuing through the years? Are you more like Christ today than you were last year? Have you let go of sins in the past year? Is repentance ongoing? Folks, this is a serious question. In fact, there's nothing more serious than this. Eternal life or eternal death is at stake. If we die without repentance, then we perish. But the good news is, if you're alive today, and as all of you are hearing Christ's word this morning, it means that God is being patient with us. There is still time because he is patient. And this is where Jesus turns next and prompts us to think about the final thing this morning. Look in verses 6 through 9. Verses 6 through 9, we finally see the patience of God. We need to think about our own death, think about our spiritual condition, and finally think about the patience of God. Verse 6, he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should, I, why should it use up the ground? Now, this might seem like a little bit of a change of a topic, right? He was talking to this group of people about some, some events of what took place, and then he switches to talking about uh, a fig tree. And going, all right, well, this is Jesus using a parable to further a point. He had just warned them that they needed to repent or they're going to perish. And so what he does in these verses, 6 through 9, is that he tells them and warns them that their time is short. But even though their time is short, God is patient with them, but that patience will not last forever. And he drives it home by telling this parable. It's a man who had a fig tree in his vineyard. Rightly, he gives it some time to kind of establish itself, send its roots out, to soak up nutrients from the soil, to be able to produce a good crop of figs. But after waiting three years, he's found none on it. And so not seeing any fruit, he commands his vine dresser to cut it down. It's wasting up space in his vineyard. It's taking up nutrients out of the soil that could be used for other plants. And so he's ready to get rid of it. And we need to know that the man is justified in cutting down this tree. He rightly should expect figs from a fig tree. And he's planted it there to produce figs. And it's not doing what it's expected to do, what it's supposed to do. And so it deserves to be cut down. This is an illustration of Israel... Christ was telling this parable to say, listen Israel, you deserve to be cut down. You should be producing fruits of repentance. You should be accepting me as the Messiah, but you're not. We've given you ample time to do so. And now, you deserve to be cut down. 
But surprisingly, there's a twist in the story. The vine dresser, who probably naturally just carries out the commands of the owner of the vineyard, here pushes back a little bit. And he says, could you give it one more chance? Could you give this tree one more chance? Listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clear out around it. I'm going to put some manure on it to fertilize it. And, and let's see what it will do in the next year. There's, there's just, let's just see if maybe there's one more chance that there might be fruit that it could produce. We'll give it everything we got. We'll give it a little bit more patience. But then he says, verse 9, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. In other words, there will still be a cutting down day if there is no fruit. But it's not today. In this parable, and through the pleading of the vine dresser here, we see the patience of God. That even though Israel deserves to be cut down in that moment for their rejection of the Messiah, that there's yet still a little bit of patience for them. The fact that they were listening to Jesus meant that the time was not yet up. God was going to be patient to them, but that patience would not last forever. It was not an indefinite patience that would go on into the future. Their time was short. They've had three years. It's now going down to one. They have little time left before they will be held accountable for their rejection of Jesus. And so Jesus, they need to hear Jesus' word that they must repent. But folks, just as God was patient with Israel, so he is patient with us. The fact that you are alive today means that God has not yet said, time's up. There is still time for all of us. Now, he could enter, end our lives at any moment. He has both the authority and the power to do that. But in his patience, he's seen fit for all of us to still be breathing today, for our hearts still to be beating. Now, it's common for sinful man to misread God's patience, isn't it? For us to see his patience and to think, oh, God doesn't care. Or God doesn't really see what's going on in my life. He's too busy with other things. Look, I'm carrying on. I'm doing what I want to do. He hasn't really done anything to me yet. I mean, if he really cared all that much, wouldn't he strike me down? This is misreading his patience. They, they presuppose that God is a hot-tempered, volatile God, that as soon as one of us mess up, that he's going to strike us down. They don't understand that God is a patient God and that he's showing his kindness to sinful humanity by not striking them down in the moment but neither will God be mocked and he will not allow sin to go unpunished and he will have the final say God does not hold everyone accountable instantly because he is giving them time to repent I want us to finish this morning by turning to 2 Peter chapter 3 2 Peter chapter 3. In 2 Peter 3, Peter takes head on these scoffers who say, listen, God's not coming back. God's not going to judge. He's, he, the world just continues on. Look, there's no evidence that God's going to like strike anyone down. And it, he sa first says, 
Listen, they deliberately overlooked the fact that there was a flood that took out sinful humanity. So that is a fact of history, and they're deliberately overlooking and forgetting that. And so that means that we, us, who know the truth, that have the word of God, need not overlook what God is doing. Look in verse 8, 2 Peter 3, verse 8. But do not overlook this fact, this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Judgment is coming. But beloved, the church, we must not forget this fact. The Lord is not slow. He is simply being patient. He's being patient that all those who are his would turn in repentance and faith. So friends, right now, God is being patient with you. He has not given you what you deserve because you are alive today. But if you do not repent of your sins and trust in Christ alone, there is a fate of hell that awaits you. And so Jesus, here in Luke 13, is calling each one of you to repent of your sins. To not stay in, hardened in your unbelief, but to turn to him, to know the salvation that he offers. He died upon the cross so that you might be rescued from your sin. The same one that calls you to repent is the one that went to the cross on behalf of sinners so that you could be rescued from your desperate state. Through his love, he came to rescue sinful humanity. We only need to trust in him and repent of our sins. And so we need to look at all that goes on in this world and remind ourselves that God is being patient with us, that there is a fate that is worse than death, and that we will have to face our creator one day. I pray that God causes all of us to think rightly about these serious issues. And I just say that if there's something I said this morning that causes you to ask questions that you just need to talk to someone. I'd be happy to talk with you after the service. Please come down after we're done. I'll be down here in the front and love to speak with you about how you can know today that you will be in paradise if you are to die tonight. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this morning and we thank you for the word that reminds us of these eternal truths that there is a fate worse than death. That we will be judged for our sins. That we cannot go and live however we want and expect that everything's going to be okay. That we must reckon with you, our Creator. And I pray, Lord, for those who are here who have not thought seriously about their, the condition of their souls. For those that have tried to put it off to a later date. For those that have tried to excuse their sin. Oh, Father, may you grant them repentance today. May today may be the day of their salvation. May they see your kindness and your patience. We thank you that you are the kind and loving and merciful God, and we rejoice in that. All praise to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.